How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Backtable Podcast. In our particular deal, we try to do it based on contribution margins. So Blake wants to use five Asahi wires. Those are Blake's wires and he pays for them. So, gotcha. and, uh, but at the same time, Blake's going to go, okay, I needed those five Asahi wires to get this case done. If I don't get this case done, we don't get paid anything, right? Because it's bundled and right. you can't pay that Asahi bill without, or whatever, you know, whatever vendor it is without crossing that lesion. Yeah. So, uh, it's a totally different mindset, but at the same time, it, it encourages the young IRs, young vascular surgeons and cardiologists of the world to that go to that vendor and say, Hey man, we need a better deal. I'm yeah. tired of paying X for your wire. I want to pay Y, right? And trust me, these young docs, they can get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com, and also pretty much any podcast platform out there. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week. I'm really excited to bring our guests back on today, vascular surgeon Dr. Jim Melton and interventional radiologist Dr. Blake Parsons from Cardiovascular Health Clinic in Oklahoma City. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the episode they were on, Back in June, 2020, they were on episode 69. We talked about pedal access for PAD. We also talked a little bit about, you know, how Jim and Blake met and, um, you know, how an interventional radiologist and a vascular surgeon and some cardiologists started working together and working together in a complimentary manner. And so we're going to get into a little bit about that as well today. So, you know, just real quick intros, Blake, uh, it's been a year since we last spoke to you. I know you're sitting next to your boss, but can you give us an update on how your IR, IR practice has been doing, especially through COVID? Yeah, I think um, the practice has been good. COVID has actually, in this outpatient space, probably been pretty good to us. We had actually one of our biggest years. I think a lot of that has to do with patients being scared to go to the hospital and, you know, they're, they're okay with coming to an outpatient center where there's limited patients to be around. And of course, we did COVID testing and all of the typical precautions that were performed at all the hospitals as well. But no, it's been good. The practice has grown, uh, which is what we want. We're continuing to try to perform uh, a lot of uh, CLI interventions and uh, limb loss prevention. Yeah. I mean, anything that you, you've added on and you're the only IR in the practice, right? Sure. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, I do a little bit of everything, but the biggest things that I do here are uh, PAD, venous, both superficial and deep venous intervention and uh, embolization. We do 
quite a bit of uh, uterine fibroid and we do, uh, I'd say the prostate artery embolization part of our practice definitely picked up last year. And then we we're actually uh, starting to get into doing geniculate artery embolization. Oh, nice. Just for hemarthrosis? I do some for hemarthrosis and then we're currently involved with getting studies set up. For the OA stuff? For, yep, exactly. As well as uh, post-op pain. And, uh, and then we also, it's offered on a cash basis as well. Okay, cool. And then the, uh, but what about the, just real quick, the endo-AVF stuff? I've, I knew you were, you were starting to do more of that last I saw you. Yeah, we've done quite a bit. I mean, we're back and forth because I have the luxury of having a vascular surgeon in my practice. <laughs> so I don't have to have it all on me to try to create. And I think there's definitely pluses and minuses of that procedure from what we've found. I mean, we've done probably... 30. It's the patient selection that the procedure itself is very easy. There's a lot to, a little bit more to the maintenance and maturation of it, I believe. And the, but your, the biggest hindrance I should say to it, and I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from doing it is, is going to be your, uh, dialysis centers because they've got to be True. You know, we li- we live in Oklahoma, so I'll just be frank here. There's not many patients that are under or on the lower end of the BMI. So, you know, we're superficializing brachiocephalic fistulas on the regular here. So it's very difficult to be able to do a dual access, you know, uh, for a hemodialysis patient at the center when they have a tough time just sticking a, a large cephalic vein. Right, right. Gotcha. So, so we've been, that's been a little bit of the rate limiting factor uh, for us. But like I said, when I've got a vascular surgeon who can do one in the same amount of time it takes me to do one perk, it's kind of a, it's, we've got a lot of options, needless to say. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, thanks for catching everybody up on that. I'm going to think it back to Jim. For the uninitiated Jim, you know, you know, probably IR audience, you know, we, we're starting to grow the vascular surgery audience a little bit and, you know, definitely, you know, some cardiologists listening as well, but you know, there's a lot of people out there either already in the OBL ASC space or just getting started. And, you know, for the uninitiated, I just wanted to, you kind of briefly tell the story of how, of your OBL ASC practice, how it started when you brought on cardiology and, and IR partners. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having us again. It's a great educational tool and uh, kudos to your success. It's been great. I listen all the time. So we, we built, uh, my partner and I, who is an IC, we built a couple of large heart hospitals here in town that were physician owned with a, a system. And uh, we did that in 2002. And then about 2013, I started looking around and what, what we built became what we left, if that makes any sense. And so uh, it became very heavy on the administration side and uh, inefficient. So we, we, we started looking at some models that would be more uh, patient-centric and uh, satisfying for patients, higher patient satisfaction scores, lower infection rates, and more, more price you know, transparency. So that's kind of when it started. And then we left there in 2015 and uh, built uh, what we have, uh, and it's, it's continued to grow. So I think that... Um, we started with just uh, an IC and a vascular surgeon. And then, you know, Blake was uh, very forward thinking very early in his career and just pretty rare and uh, very impressive, may I say, is to be that entrepreneurial, that young, and that young of an age. So I think that it's kudos to him. And uh, since then, interestingly enough, we've had one email that looked 
identical to his uh, coming out of diagnostic radiology and he's uh, heading to fellowship. So I think the word's catching on in the IR fields, which is very encouraging. And I see my IR colleagues when I have to go to the hospital, which I still do quite a bit, obviously, unfortunately, but they just all look very unhappy and beat down. And, and so I, I, I'm so glad that they're seeing there's another way to, to live life. So, so that's very encouraging. So from there, we just, you know, we took advantage, uh, the price structure and, uh, those kind of things while we were getting licensed, we used the OBL as a way to finance the, the endeavor and, and then became licensed and were added or were able to add, you know, more procedures at that time that were on the CMS, uh, pay schedule, which have, uh, obviously increased significantly over time. Okay, cool. Yeah. And just real quick, before we jump into hiring and growing and, and bringing on partners, just in terms of space, when you first started, did you buy your space or rent? How do you, you know, and can you go kind of go through the advantages of either of those? Yeah. So I think that it depends on where, where you are, you know, in your career. I think that, you know, if you have a little bit of money and you have the ability to borrow money, it's probably smarter to own the, the building that you're in. It just adds uh, to your portfolio. I think that, you know, that's what we chose to do, but it doesn't mean you can't rent to own, but I would strongly encourage if you're going to rent to have some kind of uh, association with the person who owns the building that, hey, we're interested in being partners in the building also, you know, in the near future. So most owners that see you as a owner occupied or even a one owner occupied in a large building are going to be very open to that. Yeah. You know, that's the advice that I've heard from others out there doing, you know, similar things, you know, Mary Constantino, Michael Cummings, I already mentioned those guys and uh, you know, Mike Watts is, was on the show recently talking about his setup and they all say that, you know, if you can afford to, or make it happen where you, you're just even borrowing money to own that owning is, is probably the best way to go. But again, you don't want to take on all that, you, you know, renting and then growing and then buying as you go. I, I've seen people be successful with that as well. I, I mentioned these other uh, folks out there who also have found some success in the outpatient setting. And I asked them, you know, I told them I had you guys coming on the show and I asked them what they really would, would like to learn about. And um, everybody said across the board, how do you, essentially, how do you split the pie? How do you bring on partners and make it work? Especially when, you know, you're an outpatient setting, you're taking global payments and you have all, you know, you have expenses and one doctor might use eight wires. You know, that's a lot. One person might use uh, more resources than another doing a case. How do you then pay them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And one of the, you know, the toughest things to learn and teach and kind of get figured out coming out. I think that that's the beauty of like, uh, you know, of a Dr. Parsons or someone young coming from a big, you know, institution that could open anything they want or they do just because it's stuffing out of their pocket. And then they go into a situation where yeah, in our particular deal, we try to do it based on contribution margins. So Blake wants to use five Asahi wires. Those are Blake's wires and he pays for them. So, gotcha. and, uh, but at the same time, Blake's going to go, okay, I needed those five Asahi wires to get this case done. If I don't get this case done, we don't get paid anything, right? Because it's bundled and right. you can't pay that Asahi bill without, or whatever, you know, whatever vendor it is without crossing that lesion. Yeah. So, uh, it's a totally different mindset, but at the same time, it encourages 
the young IRs, young faster surgeons and cardiologists of the world to that go to that vendor and say, hey man, we need a better deal. Yeah. I'm tired of paying X for your wire. I want to pay Y, right? And trust me, these young docs, they can get it done. They have connections and, and you know, just, just to be frank, I mean, we've changed vendors where I never thought we would change vendors and pricing where it's a very sweet spot because of some of the younger docs in our practice and the relationship. So every product you pull off the shelf is directed towards you. Gotcha. And so uh, you come up with that case and if it's, if it's a 20K case and you pull 7K, it's off of that. And if you pull 3K, it's off of that. And then that margin is yours too. Now, we try to come, you know, when they're first come out, we obviously give them, you know, the number, whatever they want, we usually give it to them, sorry. And then, and then if everything works out and they like the area and they like the space and it's hardly ever that they don't like the space, we've never had anyone come and go. Once you start working in something like this, it's pretty, pretty awesome. So I think that once they get here and and say, yeah, I want to live in Oklahoma City, and uh, that's good, and they've made whatever number they want to make coming out of fellowship making nothing, then we try to get them on a contribution margin track where, you know, they could double yeah. second, yeah. third year, you know, their salary, easy. Because at the end of the day, founding two guys, we're not here to make money off any of our partners. And I think at the end of the day, we we do put some back because we have to have some some, you know, for for capital, for the business and stuff like that. But, right. but we don't, we try to give them as close to their contribution margin as we, as we possibly can. Yeah. That, that sounds like a great model because you leave it to the individual and, and whatever, you know, it comes out of their bottom line if they're being wasteful and, and uh, yeah. yeah, that's it. They want, if they want a Montblanc pin, they can, they can buy it. You know? <laughs> it's right. Uh, Blake, he buys, he steals pins. So that tells me <laughs> anything about him. So, <laughs> Hey Blake, um, I, w- I want to get your input on that model and how, you know, cause you and I know people that are come out more recently and have seen things that don't work out, jobs that don't work out. Do you have any input on how it's worked for you versus what you've seen out there? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, f- first off, I've been extremely lucky in this <laughs> venture from the get go A that I found it and B that I was fortunate enough to work with Jim and Dwayne who he just helped founded the company. And that they really have, I mean, I'll tell you, I heard nothing, but this is never going to work from other IRs that have kind of tried this. I'll, I'll be frank with you. Most of them have told me it's never going to work. They're just going to try to steal what you do and then push you out and move forward. But, uh, you know, I, I had trust in these guys, maybe if that was stupid or not at the beginning. And, um, they've done nothing but prove to me that they've been good partners. So. That being said, he's exactly, what he's told you is exactly right. I mean, I came in obviously as an IR and fresh out of training. I mean, I'm from the area, but still it's, you know, I didn't have any patient basis, right? So yeah, you're going to have a minimum of two years of building a practice. You've got A, you know, you've got to develop those relationships, but B, as everyone listening knows, no one knows what the hell an IR doctor is outside of the hospital. I mean, they just don't. So there's a lot of education involved and though, and so they took that Tommy, they took a big risk on me and paying me a good salary to be able to take a chance that I, this was going to work out and develop. Cause we didn't really know, um, you know, we've got three specialists here that all could have some crossover and, um, but 
but uh, it all worked out. So they, they stuck with me. And then exactly what he told you, once you get to where now I'm, I'm making more than what they're paying me, then that's when it, just like you said, it, it crosses over to, it's kind of an eat what you kill. Right. So yeah, it is it exactly how he mentioned on how many wires, what are I, cause I use different stuff than he does in some cases. It all comes down, just like you said, if I need to use 18 wires to get the case done, well, you got to do what you got to do. And it's not so much to get the case done because you need to make money, right? That's not what we're here for. It it's all comes back to the beginning is you need to be able to get the case done to help your patient out. And that's the bottom line to all this yeah. is it still is patient first. It does, there's a big, you know, people are like, oh, they're in the outpatient space. All they care about is making money. And, right. and that's not the case. It really is our goal and our mission here is to provide a different level of care for our patients in a different space. And, uh, and so that's what you, you got to do, you know, if that means eating out of your own pocket to, on your reimbursement, it doesn't matter. You got to be able, okay with that. So, uh, but yeah, in the bottom line, you know, orderly or however you divvy it up, we go through and we know costs, not only your supplies, but we know pretty much to the T what it costs just because you got more than just what you open in the case you've got keeping the lights on you've got staff that's holding pressure outside for your access there's there's a lot people doing laundry for you i mean you've got all these things and these are all things you got to think of in this space when you see these large global payments like oh these guys are getting rich well there's a lot of money going back out the door from all things you have to keep the lights on they don't just make these numbers up you know that they're all from of why they give us these global payments because you've got a lot of overhead that you have to deal with yeah. And along those same lines, you know, since we're talking about staff and employees, that was the other big question that came up is a lot of having your practice is management, people management, you know, hiring, firing, you know, how do you determine whether it be now or in a growth, you know, if you're in a growth phase and everybody always likes to think they're in a growth phase is how do you determine what employees to hire and when, and, you know, who do you put in charge of hiring for your practice? Let me start with that and move on from there. That person that does that is extremely important in the yeah. in the structure. I think that that charge person in the surgery center, at least in our place, is just uh, she's not replaceable. Right. <laughs> so at, at the end of the day, we we don't have a hard time hiring the best of the best because I mean, look what we're giving them. We're we're paying them more than they're making at the big boxes. They have no call, and right. the only thing that we've ever had issues with is well. My annual salary is going to go down a little bit because I, I take all this call and I go, well, that's a life decision. I'm paying you more per hour. You know, you just have to make that decision, but that doesn't come up much either because people, and, and then we just go hire the cream of the cream. I mean, yeah, you know, Blake and I, and, uh, you know, I have two more vascular surgeons coming on one in June and one in January. And so. We know who's good, right, at the hospitals, and so we'll pick them, and we'll we'll cherry pick them off. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I attempted to do uh, was to try, you know, reaching out to techs and nurses that I knew were good. It was just hard to uh, the whole salary thing; they couldn't get over that. And I guess if they don't have experience in the outpatient setting and how nice it is to work eight to five or eight to six versus seven to whenever with call they're just looking at the the number, you know, the salary. And so that was the challenge I found in getting people to come to the outpatient setting from the inpatient setting is it was kind of a, it was kind of risky. It was an unknown there. 
it sounds like you get a similar kind of feedback, but ultimately they end up, they probably hear from their peers that, hey, this is a great job, right? That's correct. I think, it, you know, at first it was harder because they, you know, the, the your competitors, you know, are all putting in their brain that we're not going to make it and all those kind of things. So, okay. but now that the stability is there, uh, we've had no problem getting like really high, high end employees. Yeah. And do you guys have PAs and nurse practitioners? We do have them in the practice, but they don't uh, do much in the lab. Okay. Gotcha. So that like in the, in hospital or in the clinic, you mean? Yes. So we have a lot of rural clinics. So they're out doing that. They're out marketing. Uh, ah, they're gotcha. out uh, doing rural clinics and uh, finding critical limb ischemia and helping those places that, uh, that really need that help for, uh, for amputation prevention. At what point did you guys bring the, them on where you, uh, where you thought, okay, that we have, now we need a PA or a nurse practitioner, you know, there's this sort of, we don't quite need another doctor. We don't quite, you know, we need somebody above a nurse, you know, at what point was there a decision point there that you can remember? Yeah. I think the volume that my partner and I had was, you know, we needed probably um, from day one, but we just yeah. kind of held out. And I think that at the end of the day, our rural clinics are up to about 11 now. Yeah, and they're all over Oklahoma. So we fly to them, we drive to them. And so we, we have a lot of clinics that we can, uh, that we can put, uh, NPs and PAs in that do a, do an incredible job at, at, uh, taking great care of patients and preventing cardiac events and, uh, uh catastrophic peripheral, peripheral events. Yeah. And the, and those rural patients, how do you get them to, to your OBL or ASC to get the procedures done? So we fly out private and to bring them back. No, I'm just kidding. We, we just, we just set them up and get, get their appointments. You know, that they'll basically make the decisions in the rural community or it'll be Blake and I, cause we go out there too. We don't just send, uh, so we, we go to our clinics and we, we just tell them that, you know, this kind of high end, you know, technology and stuff has to be done in the cities and, and they're more than willing to come. They're just happy that they didn't have to come for just a doctor's visit to the city and not know what they were going to get all that. So it's a really yeah. good model. It's been our model for 20 years, even the heart hospital that we built. Uh, that's why they're so su successful also. Gotcha. And most of your recruiting is local. You're not trying to recruit techs and nurses nationwide or like that. Most of them you're getting locally. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have, we have other, uh, you know, we have some more ASCs going up in other cities and stuff. So we, we kind of use the same model, try to find those people in those, in those venues also. This is a question for kind of both of you guys, but how do you split up time specifically, like time in the lab for each partner? You know, I mean, you know, you say you kind of have this individual eat what you kill, but if somebody's just getting as, you know, as many cases as they can, the other person's kind of falling behind. Uh, and then they find, well, there's no time in the lab. How do I even get in the lab? I mean, how do you handle those kinds of issues? And so we'll triage cases, you know, as far as, you know, move some to the hospital. That's yeah. one way. And then also there'll be a time when we, uh, we have a state approved additional 10,000 feet on the ASC. We're ready to pull the trigger on any time. So oh, gotcha. that'll be ready to go whenever, uh, volume dictates. Yeah. And then um, how about the amount of time that everybody has to spend marketing? I mean, you mentioned the PAs and nurse practitioners take some of that off, but, you know, a lot of times, especially a, a junior partner that comes in, you want to get that face out there. So they're maybe referring docs. How do you, is that, is there a, is there a formula for that that you guys have? Is it just kind of any downtime? Yeah. So 
everybody needs to come follow Blake Parsons around for four weeks. He's, he is the master at uh, marketing. So that's yeah. about all I can say. He's one of the best partners I've ever had. I tell you, he's, he's, uh, he's done a lot of his own. I mean, we obviously have a name and a brand, but, uh, he just goes out and beats the doors down and has no problem walking in any office at any time. And, uh, he's done an incredible job with that. I'll let him speak to that. Yeah. Blake, what's your pearls on the marketing side? Oh man, it's just, uh, shaking hands and kissing babies. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be honest, it's just the kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier on, you've got two years of not being very busy, right? So if I didn't have a case or I was done with the clinic, I just got in my car and, and went around. And the biggest thing was just to go out and, and meet potential refers, you know, your other community doctors for us, obviously just like any city, there's going to be big networks and they own a lot of the primary care referral bases, but we really may get a point to stay in contact and, uh, form good relationships with our other independent docs. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of going out, explaining to them education. We do a lot of breakfast, you know, no one wants to do dinners anymore. It's just the day and age, you know, everyone's works hard, wants to go home, see their family. So, yeah, uh, we do a lot of breakfast, a lot of lunches education and it's just being there for your referring docs i mean we're all married to our cell phones these days and that's what i tell them i mean they all have my cell phone number they ever need a patient they're worried about and they just call me and i see them the same day next day um you know but that's just what you have to do you got to be ready to answer your phone at any time be ready to call them you know help them out any way you can because they want to establish a relationship a lot of their problems with quote unquote specialists from primary care and the big systems is that they don't feel respected a lot of times, right? They just right. refer it and they don't know what happens. They don't get any follow-up. And so they feel like they're kind of left out of the loop. So, you know, I always tell them, and they are, they're the most important part of this equation. They're the ones on the front lines <laughs> yeah, the, fighting the fight. We're just here to try to help them out. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of it. It's just getting out there face to face. Yeah. How do you guys decide on imaging and PAC systems, EMR stuff? Like, how does that? Good question, because we're doing it right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that like, a, do you guys take a vote on it as a group? Or, you know, is there a few people that lead that decision? Yeah, so we have usually monthly meetings with all the providers and staff that are involved. And we sit down and, you know, so we're currently changing our EMR. Um, we had one EMR system for the past what, four or five years. And. We just, it was time to make a change. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, literally we would sit down and in the evenings and you'll be here till late at night and <laughs> going over, uh, different, you know, PowerPoint presentations by these companies. And then it's, uh, trying to find one when you have a multi dis or multiple disciplinary specialty, you got to find one that helps everybody. Right. So yes, it's, it's a lot of, of, uh, sitting down and talking through it and going out and the same thing with PACs and. You know, there's obviously a money component to it as well, but uh, you got to have something that's going to make your life easy as well. There's no point in buying that cheapest car on the lot if it's not going to get you to work. Yeah. And again, you guys are buying over leasing, right? Correct. Is there a a grace period where you can try something? Um, Do you try to negotiate that kind of stuff or you just go for it? Exactly. Same with with companies for your wires and catheters. We do the same thing. Um, on that end, it's just, uh, trying to negotiate contracts and making sure that 
the company has a little skin in the game as well as we do. Yeah, right. Exactly. How much support are you guys getting from companies in terms of helping to bring patients in? It seems like what I, a common complaint I'm hearing from colleagues around the country is like, the rep will come in, they'll introduce themselves, they'll say, hey, whatever I can do to help. And then, you know, it seems like it used to be the reps were a lot more involved with helping you get those referrals and it's less these days. Do you guys have any, If like, have you experienced that at all? Probably not because you guys are high volume. Yeah, I think that, you know, they're kind of limited on what they can put in print, stuff like that uh, yeah. nowadays. So I think that they're really on edge on any of that stuff. I think yeah. that if you find a good rep and a good vendor, they'll they'll definitely, uh, you know, if they were in the past, if they were in the pharmaceutical business, that's a nice fit because they they know all the GPs and so they can go out and say, man, you, you got to see what these guys are doing, you know, right. so they'll, they'll help you market a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, the dinners, like uh, the virtual stuff has helped a lot with, you know, the vendors buying minutes for virtual meetings. We'll do oh. live cases and, uh, yeah, Avail, uh, shooting anybody here as far as their company, but Avail's got a good product out that basically, uh, very, very high end optics in the operating room that can do a live case the vendor, it's zero cost for the physician uh, or the facility. You just have their device in your in your facility and it's free. And then they uh, vendor, whoever your vendor is that day, they pay for the uh, minutes uh, oh. of the uh, case. So so that's pretty helpful. They, they'll do yeah. that anytime you want. And then they do it to their sales force too, because they want people to learn pedal or they want people to learn how to do, you know, what Blake does or what you do. And so they... They're very open to that, especially in given the past 13 months we've had. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I, I haven't heard of that company. It's called Avail, you said? Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. That's, that, I mean, that's super innovative. And like, like you said, I mean, you know, really helps with teaching and learning, especially when, I mean, have you guys been, you know, I was there right before COVID, but have you guys been doing as many, you know, on-site uh, teaching sessions uh, or has that been limited as well? Yeah, it's been really limited because the companies, they won't let their rep fly or, you know, they won't let them get out yeah. of the closet. So I think that um, the, the avail system has been very helpful. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, cool. Really one of the last questions I have for you, Jim, was as a group, how often do you guys talk about growth goals and vision? Are, you, are these quarterly meetings? Do you guys have corporate quarterly meetings or yearly meetings? You know, what amount of time is spent on the here and now versus where we want to be? Can you talk on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's really would be ideal if we could like shut down for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and go somewhere really cool and have a think tank, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we may do it anyway. I don't know. But the uh, but it's uh, it's it's hard to do. We try to do it. I think that at the end of the day, most successful places, uh, hybrid especially, is very high on the list. Uh, OBLs only, still good on the list. But, the you know, the long-term viability of those probably not as attractive, but, uh, you know, are we going to get a capitalization in this deal and are we going to do, uh, you know, something with some capital and, uh, get growth that way where we do acquisition and bring in like groups and like-minded people and just grow this thing, not only in the Midwest, but nationally, you know, so those are things that, uh, we think big. And so I think that at the end of the day, and when you're doing that, I think it's the most important thing is to find, you know, 
usually not a strategic, probably a private equity buy that has not large payments on the front end, but leaves a ton of equity on the back end for that second, third bite of the apple for your partners. Because I mean, I've got 30 year old partners here and I've got to take care of them. I mean, you have to do that in order to build a strong group and to acquire physicians that you want, because if you're just in it to get a front end large buy on a capitalization event or whatever, then it's just not going to work for the younger guys. So you've got to do that in a special way. And, you know, we're, we're focused on that for sure. Cause I mean, I think we're, we're excited about taking this model, uh, wherever it'll go. Yeah. And you mentioned something really important is, uh, finding like-minded people that, uh, have a similar vision and you guys, you guys are, you know, a good sized group. And I guess any tips for even whether you're starting out by yourself or two people or three people or, you know, an organization, that whole, you know, finding like-minded people, is there, is there any magic to screening those kinds of people out or is it just, you know, a combination of luck and luck, I guess? Yeah, there definitely is a model on, on finding the right uh, recipe on who's, who. I mean, I tell you with a pretty high percentage of who's going to be successful based on geography, uh, their age, and uh, their current practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. How's Dallas look? <laughs> Dallas. Dallas. Dallas is awesome. Dallas. <laughs> okay, well, um, that... That's pretty much all I had for you guys. Any closing remarks or advice for people out there who might be struggling with their OBL right now? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, we're, we're always here to help. I think that at the end of the day, we're, again, we hope to be someone that, uh, you know, that, that can help and a model that, that can be successful and people, you know, be able to say, you know, Hey, we can do that too. You know, and I think at the end of the day, you just have to, you have to look at that geographic area you have to look at the partners and their practice and uh and and you have to step in that cold water a little bit and i think at the end of the day uh we're gonna see a gigantic migration of this model outside of the hospital yeah i totally agree i was talking to a fellow the other day who's joining a vascular surgeon two irs in the orange county area and it sounds like he's walking into a great practice a nice collaborative practice between the three of them and uh, he's super excited about it. I mean, he's straight out of training, just like Blake. Uh, Blake, anything from you, man? No, I mean, I we just always appreciate it as always having us, you have us on on the back table. It's been great. Uh, look forward to seeing it out there and and the uh, any kind of uh, replies and information. And like you said, we're always open. You can always hit us on Twitter <laughs> or uh, wherever. If any questions, call us anytime. We're always available. Awesome. Well, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. There will be show notes available for this episode shortly. But until next time, thank you. Thank you.